That's John chapter 15, starting at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That's Philippians 1, starting at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So where do you think that you belong? If you like, given the choice, where would you want to be? Where would you want to live? Where do you feel I fit in? Or where would you want to fit in? Where for you is home? Well, last week, if you were here in our instalment from this letter to the Philippians, Paul the Apostle told us and he showed us how it is we are to live. Do you remember? Live for gospel advance. Live for others. Supremely live for Christ. And the section this week follows on from that. And if you've got one of the uh, little notice sheets, you can see the heading. The headline is, Live as Citizens of Christ. Live as Citizens of of Christ, of heaven. Live as citizens of heaven, citizens of Christ. Now look again down to verse 27, which says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel 
of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that statement, again, it's a summary of what we've seen in the letter so far. So you might ask, why then does the heading say, live as a citizen of heaven? Well, it turns out, although you can't quite see it in our English translation, citizenship is the key idea Paul is using here, behind that phrase, manner of life. So if we wanted to put it really literally, what Paul is saying is, live as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. But then what does that mean, to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ? Why would Paul talk like that? Well, first start is because of who Paul was writing to, the Philippians. Because Philippi, which is this city in Macedonia in northern Greece at the time, was a colony of Rome. Now, that meant that the citizens or the people who lived in Philippi were citizens of Rome, which gave them enormous privileges. And therefore, that was a very highly honoured place to be. They enjoyed many benefits as a result. So they understood this language of citizenship. They sought to live up to this Roman citizenship, which they enjoyed. And so Paul is working with that language. Now, we today obviously live in London, and uh, here I have the rules for the conduct of life. You can see that. First printed in 1740, and it was written for those based particularly here in the square mile. It tells you how you could gain freedom of the city of London, should that be what you want. That is a sort of citizenship here in the city. And if you do obtain that freedom then you would have to swear like this. I do solemnly declare that I will be good and true to our sovereign, that I will be obedient to the mayor of this city, that I will maintain the franchises and customs thereof. And uh, on it goes. But it, you see the point. And Paul wanted the Philippians to realize it wasn't their Roman citizenship that mattered. And here, if you became a freeman of the city of London again, Paul would say, that's not what counts. So what then is this citizenship that he wants us to be thinking about? Well, do you remember how Paul began his letter to the Philippians? Do you remember how he described them? He said they were in Christ Jesus, as we all are as believers in Christ Jesus. Now remember what Christ means? The king. So we are in the King Jesus. That is, to use the language of that book, Christ is our sovereign. He rules over us. We are in his kingdom. Okay, we can't quite see this kingdom, but it's a reality because Jesus is alive. And all of us who are believers, Paul is saying, think of yourself as a citizen, a subject, a member of this kingdom. And let that thinking then transform everything about you. Live life under the rule of this king. But then there's more to this citizenship. I hope you've got Philippians open. Just look across to chapter 3 and verse 20, where again Paul picks up that word, but now it is in the, our translation here. Chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. That's the citizenship that is ours. Heaven is where we belong. That makes sense because Christ is there. He's our Lord. Remember last week, Paul's great excitement that when he died, that he and we would go to be with Christ. And that is better by far because that's where we 
belong. Now today, people will go to great lengths to obtain the citizenship that they think will be to their advantage. My mum, very late in pregnancy, flew on an intercontinental flight to ensure not only that I would be 100% Welsh, but also to guarantee that I would get the passport to go with it. And uh, sure enough, I brought it along. You know what it looks like, but I have one. I'm a British citizen as a result. Now, some today, maybe even some here, are working towards a particular citizenship. To obtain a US green card takes a lot of effort. And even if you think you've met all the requirements, right at the end, to submit and file your application costs over $1,700. Likewise, really, for UK citizenship, again, if you think you've ticked all the boxes, to then simply the fee to apply for the end of the process will cost you over $1,300. And yet many people do it because they think, I would like to be that sort of citizen. Just like in the first century, a Roman citizenship was prized. But Paul wants us to remember, to realize heavenly citizenship. That is all the more valuable because the benefits are out of this world. It couldn't be more precious. And at the same time, the gospel tells us it doesn't cost us a thing. We receive it. It's a gift. One of these gifts God gives to his people. In Jesus Christ, if you like, we have this passport to heaven. So this heavenly citizenship, well, that guarantees our future. But then the question is, what difference does it make now? Because here on earth, yes, okay, we can't see heaven. So someone might say, well, what is this all about? What difference does it make? And Paul wants to say, those who hold this heavenly passport, you will see in them that they are different, that they are citizens like this. As he says in that opening sentence, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is, live now as a citizen of heaven, worthy of the gospel of of Christ. And he says, do this all the time. Look how verse 27 goes on. Whether I come and see you or am absent and hear of you. Now, I'm sure we've all at some point been pupils in a classroom where order is just about maintained when the teacher is around. But when he or she is not there, chaos ensues. Well, as we saw last week in Philippians, Paul's future is uncertain. Would he be executed, kept in prison? Or released, and if he was released, would he make it to Philippi or not? Well, now Paul is saying, in terms of the way the Philippians were going to live, that didn't make any difference at all. This is Paul's way of saying, you are citizens of heaven, whatever happens, because it wasn't about Paul, it's about the king. And since Jesus is always and everywhere the king, we are always citizens of heaven. So wherever we are on earth, I'm a citizen of heaven. Paul is saying, live like it, which leads to the obvious question, what then does citizenship of heaven look like? Well, as you know today, again, people of different nationalities, or if you like citizenships, often have particular traits that mark them out. Now, I'm very wary of propounding any stereotypes this afternoon, but for example, people from Wales might be considered to love rugby and singing and the rain. But... <laughs> But what are the traits, if you like, the marks of a citizen of heaven? And that's what Paul wants to tell us. These are the marks that should be in you and that you need to work towards and maintain. And in particular, two traits of those who are heavenly citizens. First, 
we are to strive side by side for the gospel. We are to strive side by side for the gospel. That's at the end of verse 27, as he says, we are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And the rest of the verse leading up to it shows us what is needed if we are to do that. First, he says, stand firm. So in the middle of verse 27, Paul states that his desire is that I may hear of you that you are standing firm. Now let me ask you, are you doing that? Are you standing firm? Now in response, I guess many, maybe most believers would think, I guess so. Yeah, I think so. I still believe the gospel. Now, believing the gospel, holding fast to it, now that is necessary for standing firm. But in Paul's mind, standing firm is not simply, if you like, about ticking those right boxes, believing the correct things. Paul wants us to realize the gospel is not something that you get hold of at some point. Then if you like, well, okay, I've got it now. I can put it in the cupboard for safekeeping. Like a museum piece, check once in a while, it's still there. For Paul, those who are standing firm are doing something with this gospel that they have. So you ask, well, what does one do with the gospel? Well, we've seen it, haven't we, in the letter so far? The descriptions Paul has given, we seek to advance the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. We aim to live in accordance with the gospel. And that's summed up in this language here in verse 37. We strive for the gospel. Now, striving is an energetic, active sort of word. So here we are, you stand firm, not by getting somewhere and then, if you like, doing nothing or standing still. Rather, you are continually active with the gospel. If you are not active with it, you are not standing firm in it. So there's the question for us, one to discuss afterwards. Are we standing firm in the gospel? Or to put it in the language we've seen Paul would use, not just holding on to the gospel, but doing something, striving with it. Well, next he goes on to be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We must be united. Now, side by side, that's obviously not an individualistic activity. It assumes that we are doing this with others. And verse 27 goes on, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind. So we need to be with other believers of one mind and one spirit. That is united as one. But what does that mean? Now again, Paul might change the way we think about unity. In wider church circles, even you might say in inter-religious grouping circles, there is much talk about unity. But the emphasis all too often is that we must get on. We must talk together, we must walk together, that even so, despite our differences, we must be united. Sometimes, even despite our differences about the message that we hold to, we must be united. Paul would be baffled by this. Sometimes people think simply if people are in the same building, the same room together, there's unity. Well, here we are, we're all in the same room this afternoon, quite a big one, but is there unity? Well, it depends. True unity comes from having one spirit and one mind. And in the language of Paul, he says, for the sake of the faith of the gospel. So that is true unity depends on the gospel and therefore what it is. We must have the same mind, be agreed about that. So what then is the gospel? Well, it has definite content. It's not each to his own at all. The gospel message, as we know, is about who Jesus is, Jesus Christ, that he is Lord 
and saviour. The gospel is about what he came to do, that we needed forgiveness and he came to bring it, and life through his death and resurrection. It's about the fact that Jesus is unique. He, of course, is the only one who can do this. And he's unique in that he has no rivals at all. And then the gospel demands a response, that is to repent from sin, as the Bible describes sin, and to believe in him. Now, all those are glorious gospel truths. And yet, therefore, if someone doesn't embrace those truths, well, there just can't be unity, gospel unity. And again, it makes sense as we put together these verses. The purpose of gospel unity is not simply to be in the same room, nor is it even simply for everyone in that room to believe these things. But Paul wants us to do something with them. And if you like, in essence, to help others to see that these things are true and so to share them. So gospel unity is for the sake of gospel ministry. Well, let's uh, pull together what we've seen so far. Last weekend, you might have heard the mighty St. Helens rugby team was in action. Now, a friend of mine was on the opposing team. Now, this friend is even older than me, so let's just say his best playing days are now behind him. He's married to a GP doctor. She warned him that if he played, he should not try to go to her for help afterwards. And anyway, his team did let him get on the pitch for the last five minutes just to keep him happy. And I'm pleased to announce he emerged unscathed. In fact, not a scratch on him. You might think, how so? Well, he explained he didn't put in a single tackle. In fact, he avoided all contact with the opposition. So whatever he was doing that afternoon, last weekend, he wasn't actually playing rugby. Well, living out our heavenly citizenship is like playing rugby. Now, I know not everyone here is a rugby fan, but just to bear with it. All of us will realise you can't play rugby on your own. It's a team sport. And think of rugby, there's the scrum. And what happens then? Well, the players line up, don't they, in formation. They are literally side by side with others. But again, simply getting on the pitch, getting the kit on, and then lining up, even going side by side, is not enough. If you just stand there and put no effort in, you will get steamrolled by the other team. If you're a player in that scrum side by side, you have to push, push together in the same direction. And so it is as heavenly citizens. Paul says we must stand firm, by standing together on this same gospel team and together strive and work hard and put in the effort. So again, worth asking ourselves, let's discuss it afterwards, how are we or who are we currently striving side by side with for the faith of the gospel? I mean, it's what we do on a Sunday afternoon, really. We gather like this. One strong reason for doing that is for, if you like, team building get to know others on our team, and build relationships so that we can then strive together. I hope we're doing that. We heard we've got the week of talks coming up. We've got the event on the Tuesday that we are hosting, but there are lots more too. Do look at all the different titles over there under the gallery. But again, that's another opportunity that whole week in all sorts of different ways to stand with others and to strive side by side for the gospel 
but then also not just in this building, out there in the workplace or the school gate or maybe in the school. Again, it's not just about whether you know other buildings, other Christians in that building, in that organisation. The question is, are we striving alongside them for the faith of the gospel? Because Paul says that's what it means to live as a citizen of heaven. So there's our first mark, our first trait of heavenly citizenship. Strive side by side for the gospel. And the second mark Paul gives us here of heavenly citizens is that they suffer for Christ. So this language of striving side by side suggests, doesn't it, there's some kind of resistance. And sure enough, verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. The assumption there, of course, is that gospel ministry will be opposed. And this isn't news to us, is it? We all are well aware of that from our own experience. And yet, Paul says here, don't be frightened in anything by your opponent. And yet we all know that is the temptation for us. So how then is this possible not to be frightened? Well, again, we're citizens of heaven. And Paul wants to tell us, therefore, we see things differently. We need to have the right mindset. And here he now gives us three marks of that that will help with this. First, realize that this opposition and the suffering for which it leads for believers is a clear sign. Verse 28 goes on. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Well, do you want a sign from God? Many do. Well, here it is. Now, in general, if we are faced with difficulty or discomfort or trial, the usual response, of course, is to seek to lessen that or preferably to avoid it in the first place. And if anyone is facing opposition for the gospel, there is actually a very simple way to end it. Stop talking. Distance yourself from any other Christians who are speaking of Christ. And if you like citizens of earth, those who belong down here, well, that's exactly what they will do. But Paul writes to the Philippians say, but you're citizens of heaven. And so he's telling them that as they persevered and kept going, continuing to strive side by side, even in the face of opposition, that was a sign. Well, a sign of what? Well, it shows, doesn't it? They were different. As if, you could say, they didn't belong here on earth, which is exactly the point. They are citizens of another place, of heaven. And their very perseverance is evidence they must be genuine believers in Jesus the King. Otherwise, why would they persevere? And therefore, that's a sign. They are safe from God's judgment. And yet at the same time, Paul says, it is a sign of the opponent's ultimate destruction. Now, what does he mean? Well, this world, if you like, with this earthly mindset everywhere, is anti-God through and through. Although sometimes that isn't always obvious. And maybe in a country like ours, historically, there's been a Christian influence. And that really does affect attitudes that people have all around the place. Sometimes it's hard to see where people really stand. Until the gospel is presented clearly. Then the response to that, one way or the other, shows people's true colours. And those who are opposing it, thereby opposing believers, are showing they clearly don't accept the gospel. They are heading for destruction. 
So striving for the gospel and suffering for it is a clear sign. Next, heavenly-minded people realise to suffer like this is also a gift from God. Well, we've been thinking this afternoon about the many ways God, our generous God, gives to us. Well, Paul has two more gifts to add to the list, verse 29. For it has been granted or given to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So first, Paul mentions a gift he expects the Philippians are more familiar with. That is our believing in Christ. But we do need to remember that. That, again, knowing Christ, having heavenly citizenship is not our achievement. We may well have become a Christian because we heard about it and we investigated and we read a gospel and we asked questions. We wrestled with it and thought it through and in the end came to believe. And yet, we can't pat ourselves on the back in any way, consider ourselves better than others who haven't done this. The fact that we believe the gospel is a gift from God. But Paul wants us to realise there's more to it. Verse 29, again, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So when trials come for the gospel, they come our way, what do we think? Or if you like, how do we feel? What's the question that we ask? We wonder, where is God? Why am I going through this for doing what is right? Why has God left me alone in all of this? But Paul is saying, don't you realize to suffer like this for Christ is a gift from God to us? Now, obviously, it's difficult for us to get our heads around this. And of course, he is not saying for a moment that suffering is easy. Of course not. It's hard. So how then can this suffering be a gift? Well, again, we've got to look at what he says already. It's a sign because, again, a willingness to suffer, hard as it is, does reveal clearly which side we are on, whether for the gospel or against it. So as we persevere in suffering, we realize, I do believe the gospel. I'm trusting it. But there's also more than that. For those with a heavenly mindset, what is to be our ambition here on earth. Well, again, Paul modeled it for us. Do you remember back in verse 22? Paul said that it's with full courage now and always Christ is to be honored with the body. That's the ambition, to honor Christ with our body, with all that we are. And to honor him means to make much of him in every way. Well, trials give a wonderful opportunity to do that. Because if opposition arises, and we persevere, what are we saying? What are we showing to the world around us? Christ is worth it. That is, I choose him ahead of my comfort or my reputation or my freedom or maybe my job or whatever else it is that is under threat. Christ is worth it. Paul emphasizes it again at the end of verse 29. Such suffering is for Christ's sake. So to suffer for Christ is a sign from God. It's given to us by him. Finally, we also suffer for Christ like the apostle, as Paul ends in verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So again, as we suffer, we think, is it really meant to be like this as a Christian? But here Paul is saying to the Philippians, look at me. 
because many of those readers would remember when Paul first came to Philippi to preach the gospel to him. He'd been thrown in jail then for his efforts. And the Philippians then knew what had happened after that. That was no one off. And as they received this letter, they would hear again. He is in chains and still in chains, still suffering. And the point is, well, Paul was an apostle. So if suffering was the way for the great apostle Paul, then why should the Philippians think it would be any different for them? And we could even take this a step further. To suffer like this is to be like one other individual in particular. And of course, if we're wondering who that is, read on into chapter 2. Paul points us to him, reminds us that to walk the way of Christ is to suffer like Christ. That is the normal Christian life. So we've been thinking this afternoon about our citizenship. Now, in everyday life, when someone from another culture maybe comes into our circles, you know what it's like. Their behavior can be quite different. They do something everyone thinks is quite odd. And somebody maybe comments, you're not from around here, are you? So where do you belong? And where do I belong? Because as believers in Jesus, we are citizens of heaven. We don't belong around here on earth. And yet this heavenly citizenship will be seen in practice, in our conduct, in our lives. These two traits we've seen, we will live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Striving side by side, united with others for the faith of the gospel. And the second trait is that will lead to suffering. But of course, not for long. Because soon Christ will come from heaven and take us to be where we do belong. With him and forever. Let's pray as we end. We praise you, our Father, for this heavenly citizenship which is ours in Christ. So would you help us now to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened by those who oppose us, but rather persevering. And we ask this for your glory. Amen.